My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome back. I'm Jason, your host. It's great to have you here. My guest this week on the show is guitarist and archivist Nathan Salzberg. I've talked with Nathan a handful of times for Aquarium Drunkard. You can go back into the archives and check that out. Uh, but this is the first time that he's been on the podcast, and we're really uh, glad to have him here. His new album is called Psalms, and it features folk arrangements of the Hebrew Psalms sung in uh, Hebrew and English as well as collaborations with folks like James Elkington, Will Oldham, Joan Shelley, and Spencer Tweedy, among others. It's a really incredible album, very, very beautiful and moving, and it was a really good time to sit down with Nathan to talk about not only this new collection, but also his ideas about preserving music and, and what kind of legacy we leave behind in terms of, of, of recordings. So. It was great to have Nathan on. I'm a huge fan of his work. I'm a, a, a huge fan of his playing. So without further ado, why don't we head into my conversation with Nathan Salzberg. You can check out Psalms on No Quarter Records, one of the best labels out there, uh, and listen to it wherever you listen to music and go track down a copy at a record store. It's a, it's a great album, really beautiful, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you want to support Aquarium Drunkard, you want to support what we're doing here on the podcast, head over to our Patreon and check things out. Uh, we are supported primarily by our contributors over there, so so head over, check it out if you dig what we're doing at Aquarium Drunkard, and uh, I'll speak with you a little bit more on the other side. All right. Well, we're rolling. Thanks for taking the time, man. I appreciate it. How, how are the How are the goats? How many goats do you have? We have two goats, um, who, in, well, in in over the course of COVID year, we got a cat and then twenty chickens and then two goats, and uh, we're down to twelve chickens now. But we also have a human baby as of last month. <laughs> so the chickens are doing okay with it. The goats are definitely experiencing the. Um, you know, dec decrease in involvement from us. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I try to I try to check in on them. We also have a dog, but he's been he's a lifer. He's been around for a long time. So we're trying to you know I try to give the goats my attention as best I can, whenever I have it available. Yeah. Well, I was curious, yeah, because I know that you and your partner Joan have a new baby, Talia. Uh, are are either of you getting much sleep these days, or are these pretty sleepless nights lately? We're actually really we're doing okay. I mean, we kind of we have a pretty good schedule going, um, whereby I'm basically kind of up or I'm sleeping in the room with her between like ten and five, 
10 p.m. to 5 a.m. waking up Joan when when Talia gets hungry, and then Joan takes over before dawn, and then I'm able to sleep until about you know 10. So I, I think between the two of us, we're pulling down like six, seven hours of sleep, you know, in in chunks. But we're getting, you know, we're we're doing okay. I mean, I say that now. I'm saying that on the record, and that's an absolute like guaranteed jinx. So. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I should say that was total bullshit. I've totally made it up. It's awful. <laughs> we're not sleeping at all. We're tearing our hair out. Yeah, um, but no, we're really doing okay. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's always. I don't, I don't have any children myself, but I've, I've been around plenty of children, and I know that uh, infants, you know, it's, 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 it's not always a guarantee that people are, are getting rest. But I'm, I'm really glad that the two of you are. It seems, from the outside at least, fairly uh, idyllic in terms of your, your situation out there with, with the wildlife and the, and the infant and, and everything else. And the domestic life. Yeah. There's yeah. a pretty fine membrane between the wildlife and the domestic life here, but we're, uh, <laughs> we, yeah, we're really lucky. I mean, we live on some land a half an hour from, from Louisville and we got, to, you know, we're able to spend 2020 out here, super isolated. Um, you know, the satellite internet isn't the best. So that's why I'm still kind of a zoom naive, which is also a blessing in itself. Yeah, um, absolutely. On for, for you, trust me. <laughs> yeah, right. Totally. But yeah, we're super, super lucky and we're constantly counting our blessings on that front. Most definitely. Yeah. I'm curious with a new baby in the house, what records have you and Joan been playing? Uh, have you been playing anything, uh, to sort of soundtrack this this really uh, beautiful and and you know the the, the first month of, of Talia's life. It's a great question, and I actually tried to keep a listening log going for. <laughs> I think yeah. it lasted like two weeks, and then it just became. I mean, <laughs> I was writing down. I was writing down the artist and the song and or record and the format, and I was like, "The fuck am I? This is so, she won't give a shit. Yeah. She won't care now. <laughs> she won't care in ten years. She won't care in forty years." Yeah, so I stopped course. doing that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, listening to her, it's been. You know, there are some things that we sort of planned. Some things that we listened to with her in utero, like mm-hmm. um, Harry Nielsen's "The Point," which is you know one of my all-time favorite records from me being a kid. Yeah. Um, we sang her that song, think about your troubles is, you know, a lullaby when she was still in utero. And that's still one that we, uh, keep close and use basically every night. So that record's been in pretty, pretty constant rotation. Um, but you know, the things that you, we've had this conversation with people who are like, Oh, what kids records do you have? We've had some kids records recommendations and I'm, you know, honestly, she's still young enough that it doesn't, you don't have to distinguish between kid and adult records now. Sure. But I also wonder if you ever have to do that. I mean, there are so many wonderful records ostensibly made for adults that are so fun for kids. Like Jake Fussell's records are super fun for kids yeah, um, yeah. or super fun for just sort of being childlike with a baby. She definitely likes to be danced around. So we've listened to a lot of roots reggae. We've listened to um, Paul Simon's uh, rhythm of the saints, which is a great record for kids. Talking heads remain in light is another one. Great. You know, dancing start to finish. Um, I put on a like just sort of did a quick playlist of '90s hip hop last week. Listened to like you know Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, and Ice Cube, and Bones, yeah. Thug and Harmony, and Thugs and Harmony, and that went really well. Basically, whatever you can keep up some movement to. But we go out every morning, and like I have an office in a barn here where I keep all my records. We'll go make a coffee. I'll play some '78s. We'll dance around. Hawaiian music has gone over pretty well. Klezmer's gone over pretty well. Just in terms of being able to keep up some kind of physical movement that she seems engaged with. So yeah. it really is. You ask. Obviously, I have a long answer to that question, but it's been such a joy. Just not so much introducing records to her because she doesn't care, 
but the experience of experiencing music with this tiny human in movement has been just yeah just like what a incredible gift and such a joy yeah that sounds that sounds wonderful that sounds wonderful and i mean she has obviously very very cool parents who have good taste and all that but i i always think about you know because i'll have friends who are like yeah you know I, I feel like i have this responsibility to teach my kid what to listen to or or, or things like that and, and and to me i i again i don't have kids so i i know i shouldn't you know make any sort of of value judgments or whatever <laughs> yeah <laughs> but there's a big there's a big part of me that just thinks like uh you know i think all you have to do is maybe teach your your kid how to listen to music or 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 the importance of it and from there you know they'll take care of it from there they don't they don't need mom and dad to explain it you know what i mean i don't know maybe that's just my naive non non-experienced version of it but but at the same time i do think about how i'll remember some of the songs that i heard as a very very young kid like you know just at sort of the the dawn of my memory and uh and whether or not you ever make the decision i'm gonna ha this song is important to me you know it that's not really how it works it's just sort of like in your head you know uh Absolutely. there's this you know the jjj the jj kale song uh magnolia uh I, I think that might be one of the first songs I remember hearing. Not his version. My dad was into a guitarist named Pat Travers, who's kind of like a like a blues rock dude. But he does this version. He does this version of Magnolia that's like so cool, like very flange guitar. And so, um, <laughs> I, I guess a couple I don't know, you know, seven or eight years ago, I was listening to that Lee Fields record, and he covered it, and uh, and I had that this like wild. Uh, association with like I just I felt this intense wave of <laughs> of feeling and I was like what the heck this is nuts and then I realized like oh that's probably one of the first songs that entered your brain in a sort of concrete way so it's 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 like I think it's it's cool um to imagine what kind of associations and memories and and sort of sense she'll have of, of this of you know this time in her life it's it's just such a fascinating and exciting thing that's a very cool story because it's obvious that you don't, you had no recollection of the particular performance. It was just the melody that stuck with yeah. you. So you could have probably heard JJ Kale's or, you know, actually Joan has recorded a version of Magnolia. I know. On yeah. one of her records. That's, that's actually, it was on one of our birth playlists that we never got around to listening to because it all happened so quickly. <laughs> but um, that, that's, there's so many versions of that song, so many versions of songs that we loved as children, but we don't need to hear the particular performance that maybe our parents would have said, well, this is the one you need to know because we like this artist. We don't like this artist who did a much, you know, inferior version. It doesn't matter to you because you only have, you just have the, the, you know, the very basics, the rudiments of the song in your memory. That's all you need to be, to have oh, yeah. it recall. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's funny the way it gets stuck in there so deep sometimes that you never would even have necessarily known to point it out. But when you feel it, that's what's, you know, it, uh, this actually is as nice of a segue as any into talking about your great new record, the Psalms, uh, Psalms rather, which, so so this was one that you, did you record this out in the, the barn office studio area? Some of it, this this was kind of underway for, well, the whole project has been, was underway for five years or so, but the recording started in early 2019. Mm. So all of my, my the, 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 the meat of my 
tracks the meat of my contribution to the record my singing guitar playing all happened we have a very dear old friend named zach riles who runs a fantastic studio a county over out here outside of a town called shelbyville he and his wife run a farm and have a he's built a phenomenal studio that we have used um the past couple years for all kinds of projects and i did my tracking at zach's in early 2019 with the idea that over the course of that year um and into 2020, I would, you know, solicit other people's contributions, go to Chicago, get some stuff done there. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, just in, even the best of times, these things take a long time. Um, so I was able to do everything here in Kentucky, not at home, but at a decent studio. And then um, because my our studio arrangement is not, is only very just acceptable. Um, yeah. And then early in 2020, just before everything shut down in early March, I was able to go to Chicago where the rhythm tracks were done, Spencer Tweedy's drums and Nick McCree's bass um, with Jim Elkington involved um, at a studio in Chicago. And that was everything that we were able to do in studio proper. Everything else was done in people's homes or if they had access to studios where they were um, yeah. over the rest of you know the, the wildness of 2020. Um, so luckily, you know, I, I was able to do everything in a somewhat arguably professional manner before COVID descended this one took a couple of years to sort of come together, but, but I was curious if it felt like it was, you know, the sort of thing where even when a project is, can be difficult, it can still sort of feel like there's like a momentum to it. That's, mm -hmm. that's moving it along. And I wondered if that's what you felt while you were assembling this one. Uh, yes. Um, that's a good question. I feel like with this particular record, you know, the, I'm, I have a problem of being goal oriented in particular thinking about, you know, I'll work through with, with my guitar records in the past, I've, you know, full admission, I will get, I'll sort of make weight, you know, I'll get to 35 minutes and be like, Oh, I've got the record. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe with one or two songs to work with some float, but I tend to be really, I think negatively focused on the product on the, you know, the manifestation of the thing with this record, because it did take, the, the practice itself of opening the psalm book, flipping around for texts that seem compelling, um, copying them over both Hebrew and English, and then starting to kind of weave melodies around them. That process, you know, it could be difficult at times, but it was such a joyful and fulfilling practice that it first didn't seem difficult. You know, it wasn't, uh, the difficulty wasn't really in, um, the idea wasn't about compiling these into an album every day i wasn't thinking about okay the album right. needs this this thing needs to happen for the sequence to work i'm going to get this instrument to play here it wasn't the arrangements were it was very solitary uh it was very meditative and in that it was um, you know it was a real balm to me yeah. um, so you know questions of ease and difficulty weren't really applicable to this once we actually started working on the thing you know in terms of tracking then it became considerably more difficult um but it really was you know for me it was a um, yeah it was a meditative experience that i had been hungry for for a long time and didn't really realize just how you know I, this could have gone on forever but i did end up reaching a point where i said you know i'm really happy with say the eight songs that i have here nine songs that i have here um this would work for me as a reflection of this several year process this would be to yeah. me you know an ample representation of my experience and of my practice um and we'll make the record now so it was not as nice not approaching it fundamentally as okay how are we going to make this record soup to nuts yeah. Yeah. 
So this, so it developed over the course of a few years, I think. So you said you started recording it in 2019. You sort of started working on the the arrangements and and the, you know, sort of figuring out the way you were going to lay out the lyrics or the lyrics, you know, the the psalms themselves that you quote from. Obviously, 2016 to 2019 into 2020. I mean, we're talking about a pretty difficult time, and you use the term balm. So I'm I'm. I wonder, you know, what was it in in as far as you know that sort of drew you back in or into the songs, you know, the psalms. What kind of what kind of relationship did you have with the text prior to starting this project? I had very little relationship with the the text, with the psalms at all. Uh my experience with Judaism and with Jewish music has in terms of a, being a participant has always been collective, you know, from being a kid at synagogue for being a slightly older kid at summer camp, the singing of Jewish music has always been a collective experience. And particularly at summer camp, you know, I went, I went to Jewish summer camp for four years or something. And, you know, uh, when one sings a Jewish, whether as a liturgical hymn or a more recent Israeli or Eastern European folk song that's been sort of set to vigorous, you know, robust strummed folk arranged guitar, you know, you sing with a big, you know, with big lusty voices and everyone's booming out in the cafeteria. And it is a, obviously it's sort of, you know, it's built to pack an emotional punch that it certainly delivered, you know, it it was very powerful for me as a 12 year old, but, you know, coming into adulthood and having no Jewish community to speak of and no Jewish practice to speak of, but wanting something, wanting something, wanting some kind of engagement, uh, and hopefully something, you know, spiritually minded, something, not an observance per se, but some kind of connection to be made. Um, I first went back to liturgical hymns that I remembered from synagogue and some of which, you know, had been sort of arranged for summer camp singing and they didn't really do it for me because I was singing them alone. Whereas I remembered them being sung, uh, collectively. And it, it sort of lit on me that what I should do was look into the Psalms because the Psalms are obviously songs that, you know, were sung, you know, if you believe the myth or if you don't, you know, they were initially sung by a single voice. Um, you know, they have had synagogue use and collective uses, but they are the kind of thing that an individual, um, can, you know, uh, the idea is that you can go to them and find sucker, find solace in them. Um, in all kinds of life experiences. And they've been used as such for a very long time now. So for me, it was like, well, this would be a great way to kind of, you know, familiarize myself with the Psalms where I never really had an experience with at the same time of finding, maybe finding something, some kind of creative raw material there that I can turn to my use. So and it, de- it definitely did that. I mean, absolutely. And what I kind of didn't, I knew in the back of my head, but didn't, wasn't familiar, familiar with quite to the extent that I am now is that the Psalms really do, a fundamental part of them is the psalmist is enjoining the, the the listener to sing a new song, or the psalmist is basically calling upon him or herself to sing, to sing a new song unto mm-hmm. God. And uh, that's what I was looking for. That's what I was trying to do without sort of realizing that the psalms would be the sites, would be the place where I would be told to do that and be given sort of the raw material to do it with. So it was a interesting meta-creative experience once I started fooling around in them. Of course, there was a lot of material that I jettisoned. You know, there's a lot of smiting of enemies and a lot of, you know, <laughs> smashing skulls and well, that's not so much skulls, but a lot of blood, you know, a lot of a lot of smiting, a lot of crushing. And that stuff was very easy to 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 omit for the sake of what really ended up being a lot of, you know, material about 
about making songs and about communing with the eternal, which is yeah. exactly the thing that I was after. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, do you, what sense do you have of the personal circumstances that, that inspired that, that want and that need on your part to sort of connect to something that was, you know, uh, a, a representation of the, of the eternal of, 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 you know, sort of, it sounds like, it sounds like you, you were interested in some transcendence basically. <laughs> yeah. I was a little hungry for transcendence, I suppose. Um, yeah. 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 I, uh, I don't, it's a great question. I mean, a lot of Cynthia Ozick said about her Judaism, well, that her Judaism was text, you know, that she was, yeah. she read, she wrote, um, and that was basically the extent of her Jewish experience. And, you know, of course, I'm sure if you pressed her on that, she would, she would elaborate and say not entirely. But for me, that was my experience, you know, and I, um, as an adult, you know, again, someone who has not been to synagogue really in any meaningful way in many years, uh, again, didn't really have a community to speak of, yeah. was thinking about trying to introduce some sort of observance into my life. And since then, Joan and I have done that. And Joan's not Jewish, but she's been, over the past year and a half, we've been, you know, celebrating Shabbat, lighting the candles and having the wine. And I shut down everything. I personally, I turn my phone off from Friday night to Saturday night, which is whether you are Jewish, whether you are Jane, whatever you are wherever you're coming from taking a day to shut your shit down is strongly recommended. I mean, it's just, it's been a real treat, especially over yeah. the past year. But, yeah. uh, so for me, then that's before I started introducing any of that observance back into my life. I, yeah. I was looking for something that to reconnect me with this, um, you know, at the time, which really was just a vague sense of my spiritual identity, I guess, you know, and so much of our experience as American Jews is, is this sort of faux ethnic. And I didn't have that around you know, in Kentucky. I mean, I, my Jewish family was all from Northeastern Pennsylvania and most of them have died out. And apart from my experience, you know, as a kid in summer camp and at synagogue, I didn't have that as an adult. So it was trying to find some kind of new, you know, meaningful connection to that sense of myself that had kind of atrophied over the years. And, you know, I was a little allergic to the idea of a spiritual practice. Um, Mm -hmm. And, but this really, this really opened the possibilities to me and, uh, and made me feel like I could be an actor, you know, and not just kind of an act at a pawn, not just sort of a, um, you know, a, a casual observer or, um, you know, facing the button, the seats in the synagogue, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's funny that as somebody who, who I didn't grow up, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not Jewish, you know. Uh, by by birth i'm i'm american and i grew up very uh in a very fundamentalist christian church you know so um so my experience with the psalms like i i think about how the old testament is full of really f fascinating stuff as is the new testament um but um but i i think the psalms to me they were one of my favorite books in the Bible as a kid uh, because I like the audacity of the psalmist a lot. Um, the The psalmist very often seems unafraid to sort of, I don't know, almost like cajole God. There's almost like this like ranting quality to some of them. Um, there's obviously so much variety in it. You know, there are these beautiful songs of praise and this idea of, singing a new song is, you know, an eternally uh, 
moving and uh, sort of transformative idea. And then, like you said, there's a lot of smiting and a lot of enemies getting crushed and a lot of stuff that, uh, it, you know, I read the interview that you did for Jewish Current. You talked about how in Psalm 47, you, you skipped over the line about, you know, God crushes his people beneath us and nations beneath our feet and all that stuff. So, so obviously there's like a certain kind of reckoning with a lot of the language, but at the same time, you know, as somebody who had not spent a lot of time in the Psalms, were you sort of surprised by their thematic variety and by the sort of uh, the, 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 the wideness of expression in the book? Yes, that's very well said. Uh, that's a great description of, you know, the, the purported psalmist. And I was, I really kind of had no idea. And of course, as you move along, um, getting past the sort of familiar, you know, um, we have such a, the, the, I mean, King James Psalms are really a fundamental part of our experience just as listeners and readers in America, West, you know, sort of what Anglo culture, I mean, that stuff yeah. is really threatening. And certainly, you know, I have experienced the Psalms as you have, maybe more so in, you know, through the music of uh, Pentecostal holiness churches and, you know, recordings mm -hmm. made by people like Alan Lomax in the 50s and 60s and, and, and earlier of Psalms, the Psalm settings in the, you know, what came out of the, the, the Great Awakening um, and camp meeting hymns and all of that. I mean, that stuff is, you know, it, it found such a home in those white pioneer, uh, you know, Protestant hymns. Um, yeah. so I was more familiar with those than I was, you know, with the Hebrew texts and with the ways they've been translated in various Jewish usages. Um, mm -hmm. but absolutely. And now in a way, I feel like I didn't do justice at all to the diversity of the Psalmist's perspective or perspectives, um, because I just kind of found what I want, what I needed in the moment. But certainly, I mean, if I had it in me to do more of these, which I probably don't. Um, you can do so much with them. You know, there are there's so many avenues that you could take that address so many, um, so many corners of spiritual yearning. And you're, you know, that figure of that, you know, the psalmist cajoling God. You know, I think of Tevia from Feather on the Roof. Like that is such an archetype, kind of in Eastern European Jewish folklore too. Like the you know, the man haranguing God for treating him this way and, and, yeah, and not yeah. you know, it is, it is such an archetype. Um, and so that was certainly, I was surprised to find him there because he was very familiar to me, but from a totally different, much more recent, you know, of a much more, much more recent vintage. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I am, so it's interesting to me that I, I find there to be so much value and beauty and, um, utility in what you're talking about, which is saying like you went through and you you picked the stuff that was resonant with you, right? I mean, that's sort of the way you went about it. it there wasn't like a sort of like a plan of attack where you're like, I'm gonna get, get this one and cover this one. You were just sort of wandering into the text and just looking for what spoke to you, right? Was that, was that a fair way to describe sort of the way exactly. you- Exactly, yeah, yeah. It was so completely subjective. Yeah, I mean, it was, and, and, and there really was no, there was no sense of what I was going to find. I knew what I was looking for vaguely, but no real sense of what I was going to find. And yeah. for me, that was, you know, again, that was core to the experience, core to the practice, especially because so much of what I remember of, you know, Jewish devotional singing was, you know, the sense of things being found and being delivered or reiterated as opposed to things being sought and things being hidden. And, um, yeah, 
you know, and well, obviously so much of organized religion is that, is that things are, you know, one of the translations I used for the, the work is a modern Orthodox translation and there are glosses on almost every single line and they're laughably, um, how do I say this in a politic way? They're laughably <laughs> reductive. You know, they really don't give you, they, there's very little room, if any, for, analysis for disagreement it's basically like well this is what the psalmist means here because this is what god does yeah period and you know that was no interest or use to me but um right. you know i was more interested in you know the, yeah the idea of seeking and finding was so much more interesting to me than being uh than, than coming at it with a sense of like oh this is what is going to this is what is going to be revealed to me and this is what i have to work with right. to make this coherent or make it make sense to me or anyone else right right yeah i think that the the um the earnestness of the seeking is what you're talking about there, which is to say that you were open to revelation, basically. You can't go in expecting what you... You can't go in... Well, I guess you can, right? You can do whatever you want, but... <laughs> People do it all the time, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely, absolutely. And that's par partially why... That's partially why this becomes so difficult to, to, to discuss in so many ways, because you're dealing with, you know... I think that that there's a uh, an unfortunate tendency among religious, uh, you know, adherents of all of all faiths, really, to 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 suggest that their interpretation is not their interpretation, but rather just simply the 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 transcendent truth that cannot be you know uh, danced around. And, and 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 I don't know, like so much of the music that you hear in the Alan Lomax archive, you know, which you work with, or or so much just music in general, you hear that conviction of the faith come through in a way that's so moving and so powerful and so expressive. So I like that, you know, I like conviction in music. Um, and yet I also find myself drawn to, I'm going to make my version of this now. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to assemble, a, a, I'm going to build an assemblage that works for me. And it doesn't need to work for you, you know? And so I think that there's something interesting about that because this is like, this isn't uh, so much of your work engages with, with the past, but there's a powerful sense of the present on this record too, because you're, you're making this something, you know, you're, you're making this a new song and you're singing a new song as somebody who doesn't usually sing on records, you know? So that's like a whole other element to it. Yeah, that was something that I sort of didn't see coming necessarily. I mean, I knew I was going to sing on it, but I thought maybe I would have someone else do a lot of the singing, if not most of the singing, or other people. Sure, um, sure. And I, yeah, I do want to say too that it's a you're talking about you know the conviction or maybe the sense of certainty that comes across in a lot of sacred music. And I do think you know we think about obviously you know people like Sun House, people like yeah. um, Ira Leuven, you know these folks who were really torn with their faith throughout their lives, and they performed conviction. Um, and their songs sound convic sound convicted in a way that, you know, in a didactic sense, we listen to them more like, oh, they, you know, they believe, they know, they're, they're you know, uh, I know I am, I feel I am, you know, uh, yeah. gl great glory in my soul, that sort of thing. Like that is, it's it, but it, I, fundamentally, it is a performance of faith. And the, you know, obviously, the very best sacred music is that. I think, well, among the best sacred music or one of the best strains of sacred music is that which is you know, you kind of know people are doing this to shore themselves up. They're singing to try to convince yeah. themselves. They know fundamentally that they're unsure. Um, and that's what makes sacred music so exciting to me, I think, is that just the, I mean, the absolute 
the the bared humanity in it, especially when you know when you when you believe in someone's artistry more than you believe in the fa- the conviction of their faith or the faith yeah. of their conviction. Um, it leads you into a place of, uh, yeah, the holy doubt, right? It is so beautiful and incredibly moving and imbues the performance with a grace that I think someone who just, you know, or the music you would hear on the 700 Club doesn't. Fundamental. <laughs> for all yeah. kinds of reasons. No, no. But yes. It, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But getting back to what you said, yes, the singing here was, um, you know, I've said this sort of, you know, not entirely in jest, it sounds sort of needlessly self-deprecating, but there are so many wonderful sacred performances, particularly in, you know, on 78 RPM records or in field recordings that, you know, folks are not great singers, but they sing in a moving way. You know, they put across the performance in a way that moves you perhaps more than a trained or confident singer would do. Um, yeah. And I let myself... You know, I'm I'm not a super confident singer, but I, you know, as I worked further, you know, as the, as the practice went on, and I started to accrue more of this material, and again, you know, given the injunction to sing, I realized that I was—I won't say I was being called to do so, but I was—I put myself in a position that I couldn't deny my responsibility to sing this stuff that I'd put together. You know, yeah. so at that yeah. point, I was—I said, okay, yeah, I'll be the singer on this record. Um, which was exciting to me. I mean, it was a bit of a challenge to record it, but um, I felt more comfortable singing in Hebrew, certainly, than I would have done, I think, singing in English, um, certainly singing these songs in English, because in Hebrew, there is that space between, you know, because I don't know, because I'm extremely in doubt, because I'm extremely uncertain about my connection to the underlying concepts here and to the divinity. So to me, the Hebrew was a little bit of a hedge but it also gave me, you know, again, to sing Hebrew again was a really exciting, um, it reconnected me with being a kid and singing Hebrew again, you know, in the cafeteria at summer camp and yeah, was a source of great joy. And also, and it, it did provide an extra level of, um, yeah, just that of sort of safety of, of a feeling of, you know, not being quite entirely exposed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you you yeah it's not, yeah you took refuge in the in the language. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's well, right. You know, so when I last saw you, it was a couple of months ago over Zoom, and you were at Will Oldham's house, and I was doing a Zoom interview with him and Matt Sweeney, and I think it was like a forty-five minute interview, and I think at least a half hour of it was just them catching up and 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 sharing. Uh, like truly exciting and interesting information uh up to with each other you know and i was just sort of there and it was like this is the this is the best um but i wasn't expecting to see you there so it was really cool i was like hey you're hanging out with will and he appears on this record along with some other folks obviously joan shelley's on it james elkington spencer tweedy who did you mention also you said there i think a, a bassist maybe that i that i didn't just credit yeah, there's a Nick McCree, who's a fantastic jazz bassist and all other kinds of music bassist in Chicago, who's played with both Jim and me over the years. He's an old pal of Jim's. Yeah. Um, and he, Jim, uh, sorry, Nick and Spencer, the last time we saw them, um, or last time we played with them, well, before we tracked the rhythm stuff in Chicago, they were Jones' rhythm section on a tour we did in late 2019 in the Midwest. So we did like five shows with them. 
Yeah. Um, and Nick was just a go-to. He's a, just a wonderful guy, an incredible musician. And because both he and Spencer were in Chicago and Jim was playing a role as a, as producer and arranger of the record, um, it was easy to get them together for a couple of days in Chicago to do all the, uh, to do the rhythm tracks. So, and, and one person you don't mention, if I may, is, is Noah Babioff, who is uh, the, an Israeli singer and songwriter, a uh, really phenomenal one, um, who I asked fairly early on if she wanted to contribute to this, um, given her being you know, a fluent Hebrew speaker, obviously, but a speaker of modern Hebrew and not of biblical Hebrew, um, but someone who could be, who would have, who ended up being a profound assistance uh, in terms of my pronunciation, um, but also such a wonderful singer and someone who had maybe even less religious affiliation um, than I do. You know, a mm. lot of Israelis don't, you know, secular Israelis grew up with very, very little Judaism. And I think I had more than she did, arguably. Um, so for her, this ended up being, you know, she would say, she told me that it was a very meaningful experience for her as well to kind of connect to some of this stuff that, you know, maybe was bouncing around in her head, again, sort of in the collective unconscious, but she hadn't really engaged with. So, and she was so, so crucial to this in terms of my confidence. Um, I love her contributions so, so much. She does all these sort of stacked Enya-like harmonies that I uh, didn't ask for. I was just super thrilled to get. So she's she's really core to this too. Yeah. So this, you know, you're, it's a very personal record in terms of of where you're coming from, and it sounds like it was a, at least at, when it started more of a solitary experience. How did it feel to open the record up to other other players and other collaborators? <laughs> Uh, yes, that was the idea. You know, I knew that I didn't want it to be a solo. I didn't want it to be a solo record in any meaningful way. Um, and part of it again was, you know, um, I wanted the practice, the practice was by its nature solitary, but I wanted the actual, I wanted the record, I wanted the finished product to be, uh, the manifestation of my, of my people, you know, of my, uh, you know, I say this sort of laughingly, but of kind of a congregation, you know, whereas, yeah. you know, uh, 10 men or 10 individuals um, in you know, Judaism make a minion, which means you can have a Torah service. And I kind of felt like these folks were my minion, you know, my, some very, very dear friends, some people that I actually still have not met in person, but the gym brought in as, um, as contributors, um, such as the trumpet player, Stephen Burns in Chicago, but folks who kind of got what I was doing. Um, and it became, yeah, yeah. A real experience of fellowship and, Certainly, you know, I had the, the group singing in some places was, you know, an intention of mine very early on that I wanted again to, you know, sort of um, re not reproduce, but to experience again the feeling of singing collectively some of this material or some of this, you know, the uh, this material, the, the, the spirit of this material, you know, the sort of the, the, the spiritual aspects um, singing in, in, in group harmony or in group unison as we do um, is, is I think the way a lot of this stuff should be done. So, or a way that I, way that I've experienced or enjoyed so much sacred music too, you know, especially in terms of say gospel quartets or sacred harp singings or whatever it is. Um, so recreating some of that was, was really, was really crucial to me. Um, and I ended up with just, I feel like everyone who was involved or brought there, uh, or at least all my friends who were involved were really excited about the idea. They knew that I felt very committed to it. So it felt like I had a super, super solid team, you know, yeah. um, who under, who understood the intentionality of the project. I've interviewed Will Oldham a few times, and I really like the way that he talks about God. Um, I think when I first interviewed him for Aquarium Drunkard, he, he said something like, 
you know, for better or worse, his default is to think of God as as all things. So, I mean, he yeah, he's great, right? <laughs> so Will's like, God is the absence of God, and and God is God, and God doesn't exist. So of course God exists. Like all these, like I love the way he uses the word, right? The idea to sort of encompass everything. I wonder as you're engaging with this thought of the higher power or a higher power, you know, you've mentioned that your practice is is a modified and sort of individualistic one. I wonder how do you conceive of of God as you're working on this album? And and did you end up finishing the process with different thoughts in your head than you started? Mm. Uh, I definitely would not disagree with Will's reading on the God issue. I mean, the, so the, you know, the most important prayer in Judaism is the Shema, which is sort of the watchword of the faith, the declaration of monotheism. And it says in translation, you know, hear, O Israel, hearken to, O Israel, Adonai is our God, Adonai is one. And that sense of the oneness of the unity of the divine, and especially in, you know, in ideas of Jewish mysticism and the idea of tikkun olam, which is the repairing of the world, is to sort of reunite, um, you know, the 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 creator God, the sort of masculine attributes of God, with the shekhinah, which is the divine presence, which were sort of disconnected at the moment of the fall, or really at the moment of the creation, um, and that we have a role to play in terms of making that reconnecting, you know, reunifying the the unity, you know, the yeah. the, the alpha and omega, you know, the um, the infinitude, everything. And I have nothing less than that certainly is my conception of God. And so, you know, it's sometimes it can be difficult in the Psalms because God is very present and God is very many times very embodied and God is very masculine. And, um, you know, it's very easy to read past some of that stuff by just thinking about the totality, about the wholeness of the divine. Um, and especially at a time, you know, working through the Trump era, working through COVID, feeling isolated, feeling desperate. Um, the sense of, again, the sense of the Psalms as being a balm, as being a way, an individual route, an individual point of access to that unity um, was, was, created for me a spiritual space that I didn't know I had access to or that I had need for. Um, and so singing these songs again, music has always been that for me. I mean, certainly the most spiritual zone that I can inhabit, whether as a participant or as an, as a, as a listener or an audience member, you know, casual observer. Um, and this has just deepened or broadened my, I guess, tool chest for that access, you know, or my like key ring. I feel like I have more doors that I can open now um, for the sake of that connectivity, you know, to the, to the oneness that is the thing that we call God and is nothing less than that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, that, that's such a, there's so much encompassed in what you just, what you just said. So it's, it's it's uh it's almost dizzying to wonder like you know all the different directions we could take the conversation because it's <laughs> such a you know so much of your work I, I I loved the land work records and I loved hearing the sort of interplay between these ancient seventy eights and 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 your work and you work with the Alan Lomax archive so 
the connection between the present and the past or the sort of eternal present that is captured in a recording, you know, to me, I feel like that's always played in your work and that there's a sense of of time travel almost of of sort of this blurring between moments. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder if when you're working with material that is historically rooted and has been um, approached and integrated into so many different areas of culture and of faith and and just you know it's 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 such a massive undertaking you know what what sense do you have as far as your relationship with time and with history when you think about this record i mean i can't imagine that as an archivist and a scholar the way you are you know were you able to wrap your head around sort of the um the scope of what you were doing with this record or do you have to sort of shut that off and just start making the thing and let it bloom into whatever it is going to be oh that's a that's a lot that's a great question I know. and <laughs> i um i mean that's everything to me i mean the idea of uniting the present with the past in some meaningful productive you know walter benjaminian way revolutionary ways yeah revolutionary sense is very important to me and i do think it's it's crucial to my experience in everything that I do as a reader, as a listener, as a writer, as a living, acting human being. Um, I, you know, I, not at all to denigrate things that insist on their presentness or on their, you know, their um, immediacy. But I don't tend to care for music that is. I won't speak in the negative. I, I really value things that have endured beyond their emplacements in time and in space, things that are able to reach us beyond, you know, the bounds of their physicality, their mortality, um, perhaps their shelf life, you know, certainly in terms of 78s. And that's one of the reasons why, I mean, the Landwork Project, again, was just a total experiment. And I hadn't thought anything through really conceptually before I started it. It was just seemed like an interesting thing to do. And then as the COVID year proceeded, Landwork became all of a sudden this highly charged, super weighted experience for me that was, you know, enabled me to burst beyond the kind of the bounds of my physical isolation in space, but also this sense of just oppressive um, time, the time that never seemed to change, you know? And again, we had an, still have an incredible physical experience out here where we live that has enabled us to, you know, we certainly weren't stuck in an apartment in New York city, like friends of mine were. Um, But the sense that, you know, we, if you are a close listener and reader of historical material, you have a key, you have a means of bursting out of your emplacements, right? Your context. And that makes you a better, bigger, I think more rigorous and more engaged person with the universe. And it certainly, it, it um, reinvigorates these things that were never meant to last or never had hope to last. And of course the Psalms, you know, I'm sort of speaking largely about 
in some cases, you know, vernacular culture or um, people's history in terms of working people's history or the history of the oppressed, um, of the subaltern, say. And the Psalms are, you know, the Psalms are, uh, Psalms are hardly folk material. The Psalms aren't um, forgotten material by any means. But there was right. a sense that this stuff could be, um, you know, everything is charged with its own historicity and it can be reintroduced into our time in really powerful ways. And again, I'm totally borrowing and ripping off and cheapening Walter Benjamin, but um, that idea is really powerful to me. And that's, I guess, my interest in what I do as a, with my job and what I do as a record collector, um, what I do, my interest in this stuff. Um, so that wasn't really meant to last. And yet we have both the opportunity and, and the privilege to, um, to reintegrate it with our experience now. And it makes everything better and bigger and more meaningful. Well, Nathan, it's been so awesome talking with you about all this stuff. In closing, I, I want to ask one more monumental and insane question. Um, <laughs> because I've just been tossing softballs at you the entire time. I know. So, so let's try a hard one. Um, <laughs> we've moving on from God, you know, as somebody who, who, who does, uh, preservation work and 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 makes it um you know a, a, a not insignificant portion of of your life has been dedicated to to um preserving and maintaining and and helping to uh get these sort of ancient recordings out into the world in a way where they can be interacted with you know do you ever think or allow your your mind to wander or daydream about how your recordings will live beyond you. Um, I know that that could <laughs> invite a sort of like ego maniacal weirdness, but I don't think it has to. Uh, I'm curious if that's been the case for you. Wow. That, you know, I've never, I've never considered that before. I truly have never considered that before. And now I will consider it. You know, it really, it really hasn't. I mean, a lot, a lot of times I do think about, you know, I'll listen to a record um, listen to a 78, say, of it doesn't matter what it is, and, and try to imagine what it would be like if this particular singer or members of the band or whatever it is could know yeah. that this guy was standing in this barn in this place in this time uh, enjoying this record that someone cut and probably forgot that he or she did it 10, 15 yeah. years later, you know, after doing so. I think about the fact that, you know, the story about James Carter, the prisoner at Parchman who led the singing of Poor Lazarus that was included on the um, Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack. So that was a Lomax recording from 59. Um, T-Bone Burnett put it on that soundtrack and money started rolling in. And this is right when I first started working at the Lomax Archive in 2000. I started in 2000. This happened in 2001, 2002. And Anna Lomax, Alan's daughter, um, had to hire an investigative reporter to track down James Carter so she could pay him the royalties that he was due. And yeah. when he finally found, he was in a hospital in Southside Chicago, had pneumonia, I guess, you know, slated not long to live. Um, and his wife was found. She was the retired deacon of a storefront church. And they reached out to her and said, you know, we have this recording. And she said, well, my husband isn't a singer. 
I said, well, and, you know, sent photos, basically recreated the story. And he had no recollection of being recorded by Lomax. Remembered the song and certainly had no idea this song was on the soundtrack. No idea what the, what the movie was. And a few days later, he was flown to the Grammys, his first plane ride, all this sort of thing. Um, but I love thinking about, you know, it just, if not, if it weren't for that, you know, one phone call, the guy might have died and there would be no sense that what he did, that, he, you know, he was able to, to excavate that memory and then have that memory, have it, you know, manifest this thing far beyond his life and his context and the lives of all of these people who saw the movie and bought the soundtrack. And, um, I, you know, I love thinking about that. I love thinking about the, you know, those gossamer threads that like tie the past to the present and make those connections possible. Having said that, that's an absolute tangent and I'm sorry, you're welcome to cut that out. I have not considered what this stuff would do in the future. And, you know, in a way it's, I feel like, you know, I I mean, I, and I will be overjoyed if someone 20 years from now digs this stuff up the way that people were digging up, you know, forgotten seventies singer, singer songwriters or, you know, uh, Ethiopian band leaders who now drive cabs in DC. I would, I would love that if this can find a life, in some other place and other time, but I've never considered it actually happening. So now I will. Yeah. Well, we'll have to touch base after you've given it uh, time and, uh, and we'll get your complete thoughts of how your work will be appraised in the future and how it will last. <laughs> we'll do a second uh, podcast all about that. You know, we'll sort of do like a, like a, write a science fiction story of how, how it works. I think that's probably the best way to go. So. Excellent. Give me like 15, 20 years. Yeah, no, no problem. No problem. I'm sure the podcast will still be going in 20 years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Nathan, it's been so much fun talking with you and this record's so beautiful. And um, I've been such a fan of your work. Uh, the, the heart and the spirit that I hear at work in your stuff is uh, so moving and so evocative um i think i've told you before that like there have been times where i've put your records on for the first time and just um sort of been overtaken with emotion and i think that that comes from this deep and and emotionally rooted engagement that you have in in these traditions and these ideas and 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 music from from long ago and uh, it's, it's, it's just been, it's been a real blast getting a chance to talk with you about not only these incredible songs, but uh, your family and goats and all this other great stuff. So uh, th- <laughs> thank you for taking the time to do it. I, I appreciate it. That is deeply heartening, man. I really, I genuinely appreciate that very much. Thank you. Run Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Jason Woodbury. I write, host, and produce transmissions. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton, Sarah Goldstein, and Jonathan Mark Walls. 
make visual elements for the show. Our executive producer is Aquarium Drunkard founder, Justin Gage. If you want to support Transmissions, there are a few things you can do. One, you can leave a rating and a review wherever you listen to the podcast. So whatever your app of choice is, get in there and give us five stars and tell people what you enjoy about the show. This helps people discover what we're doing. We're always looking to expand and have more folks involved in these conversations. So that's one way you can help out. The other way, of course, is to check us out over on Patreon. Uh, You'll get all sorts of interesting, cool bonus stuff, a lot of bonus audio. So head over to Patreon and search for Aquarium Drunkard. And that's that's a way you can help us keep the servers humming. Transmissions drops every Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts and at Aquarium Drunkard. We'll be back next week. I'll be joined by drummer, comedian, and all-around independent rock scholar John Worcester of the Mountain Goats, uh, Bob Mould Band, Super Chunk, and The Best Show. It's a great talk. I uh, really enjoyed hanging out with John, so I think you'll dig it too. We'll be back next week. Until then, stay safe and uh, keep cool. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Transmissions. Transmissions.